собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. Over the past few weeks, I've gotten several requests to make transcripts for the interviews. I've decided to do this because I think it makes the podcast far more accessible for those who who can't hear the podcast or, frankly, just like to read interviews rather than listen to them. And while I don't have a lot of time to transcript each interview myself, I figured out the best solution is to far them out to a service. The problem is that transcripts cost about $1 per minute of audio, therefore making each episode around $45 to $50. So basically, four interviews a month costs about $200 a month to transcribe them. If you'd like to become a patron, specifically for transcription, I've created a new rank on my Patreon page, Senate Translator. You can go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash seansrussiablog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit the Patreon button. Choose rank 9 Senate Translator to support transcription. Some of the most important figures of the Tsarist system were those upper-level administrators, those governors, the people who ran the police, and other institutions in the provinces. And by the last quarter century of the Russian Empire, many of these people turned out to be pretty competent bureaucrats, as they essentially ran the country. But who were these people, and what were their experiences, especially as Russia descended into war, revolution, and civil war? How did they survive, if they did survive, the early days of the Soviet Union? For some insight, I turned to Richard Robbins, who's recently published a biography on the life of one of these men, Vladimir Fedorovich Zhunkovsky. Richard Robbins is a professor emeritus of history at the University of New Mexico. He's the author of Famine in Russia, 1891 to 1892, The Imperial Government Response to Crisis, and The Tsar's Viceroys. Russian Provincial Governors in the Last Years of the Empire. His new book is a biography of Vladimir Zhunkovsky, titled Overtaken by the Night, One Russian's Journey Through Peace, War, Revolution, and Terror, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press. Here's Richard Robbins. So your new book, um, Overtaken by Night, One Russian's Journey Through Peace, War, Revolution, and Terror, is a biography of Vladimir Fedorovich Junkovsky. So I thought we'd start by having you introduce who Junkovsky was and what inspired you to write a biography of him. I was inspired to write the biography by the very nature of Junkovsky himself. He, he was a man uh, in all seasons, if you will, not necessarily for all seasons, but in all seasons. Uh, he starts out life as a, as a courtier. Uh, he becomes uh, engaged in an outreach to the working class of Moscow. Uh, he becomes governor of Moscow province. He's the head of internal security for a year, and a, uh, from 1914 to, to 19, the middle of 1915. He then is a general at the front in the First World War. 
Uh, he is a political prisoner after the war. When he's released from jail, he becomes a, a writer and writes an enormous memoir history of his uh, life and times. And then um, he becomes curiously a consultant for the Soviet secret police on a lot of sort of technical matters. Uh, and then eventually, of course, he's a victim of Stalin's terror. So he lives through this enormous period of Russian history. And I think his life story uh, gives us a, a real valuable insight uh, into this very complicated uh, and tumultuous period. Yeah, I was I was going to ask this question at the end of the interview, but I think it actually fits here quite nicely. And that is, you know, I was looking over the books that you, the other two books that you've read. You, you, your first two books were A Famine in Russia, eighteen ninety one to eighteen ninety two, uh, The Imperial Government Responds to a Crisis, and then your second book, The Tsar's uh, Viceroys. Uh, Russian provincial governors in the last years of the empire. And these two books really address uh, Tsarist administration, the the mid-level kind of very important bureaucracy and officials that are running the country, particularly in the provinces. Uh, So how does Zhukovsky's story fit within those themes of your previous work? Well, I think three books actually do form a kind of trilogy. The Famine book was a study of the administration uh, or the administrative chain of command, or the, the power vertical, to use Putin's phrase. Uh, how, how did it function? Uh, how did it uh, work? What were the problems there? And as I studied that, I became interested, of course, in the officials themselves. And the governors were obviously key. And I wanted to find out who the governors were, uh, how they functioned, and why they functioned. And so that was the second book. And in the process of writing the book on the, the uh, governors, I ran across uh, Zhukovsky and his enormous and valuable memoir. And it seemed to me that he really exemplified the, the many of the sort of changes that were going on in the state administration. He exemplified a, a high level of competence, which I believe was was much more generally spread uh, through the administration than is generally uh, viewed or, or believed. Yeah, and I think another thing, one of the things about illuminating this layer of administration, I mean, you said this in, in your... Um, the, the prologue to, to uh, Zhukovsky's biography, and that is, you know, historians tend to be, uh, how did you put it, the, interested in the three R's, royals, rogues, and uh, radicals, yeah, I think right. was the third, Ro- I can't remember. Royals, revolutionaries, uh, uh, writers, and rogues, yeah, the four, the four R's. Yeah. Right, and granted, this level of administration, you know, hasn't been co- given as much as attention as it should have should be in the sense of really trying to understand the way that Tsar's system functioned and the governance of this very vast empire, and particularly in the latter parts of the 19th century and the first you know 15 years of the 20th century, particularly after 1905. So, talk a bit about the importance of this layer in in your understanding of the Tsar's system and its kind of twilight years. The governors were really, in some ways, the real rulers of Russia. I mean, they were out there with the with the people in a much closer way than the administrators in in Saint Petersburg. And uh, I think Zhukovsky uh, is a good example of the sort of emerging sort of new political style 
that was happening uh, or was coming to the fore in the years, particularly after 1905. Russia was now a much more pluralistic kind of uh, country. And to, to be successful, uh, I think administrators had to become what I call politicalized. That is to say, they began to, to sort of use the techniques that we associate in, in our country with what politicians do. I mean, including uh, getting out and pressing the flesh and meeting the folks and and uh, and talking to them directly about their problems and then trying to bring their problems to bear on the uh, administration of, of the state. So uh, I think, you know, Zhunkovsky and is ex- ex- an exemplar of this kind of uh, development. Yeah, I want to get into his, his more of his personal style in, in a bit, but let, let's kind of go back to the beginning. So Zhukovsky, he, he comes from a noble family, but it's not a princely family. But already by his mid-20s, um, he he becomes an, a, an adjutant to uh, Nicholas II's uncle, the Grand Duke Sergei uh, Alexandrovich, and a member of the court. So what was his what was Zhukovsky's experience uh, having landed like so close in the centers of power and within the kind of extended circle of the royal family? First of all, I mean, he was a kind of uh, as a young man, uh, of course, he, he went to the core of pages, which has a, a direct connection to the court. Uh, he served in the Preobrazhensky Guards alongside the future Nicholas II. Uh, he he his position as adjutant to Sergei Alexandrovich brought him into regular contact with all kinds of members of the royal family, and he got to see them up close and personal. He began to see them both in terms of their their abilities, some of which were quite remarkable, but on the other case, he in the case of say for example Sergei Alexandrovich, uh, he uh, re- respected him as a, a kind patron, but he also recognized him as kind of a petty tyrant and also as a, an administrative incompetent. And so, so I think he, he, he saw the, the, the royal family, in some respects, warts and all, but at the same time, he had this you know, starry-eyed reverence for the, particularly for the emperor, the office of the emperor. So uh, he, he sees, he, he sort of has a bifurcated vision a little bit. I mean, he sees, he knows Nicholas, Nicholas's weakness, he knows Sergei's weakness, uh, but he also has this tremendous reverence for them. He had a particular, of course, uh, reverence for Elizaveta Fyodorovna, who was the wife of Sergei Alexandrovich and the sister of the empress. And uh, he, of course, sees her really almost as a, as a saintly figure, really. Now, it, my impression from, from reading your biography of him is that Zhukovsky, he... He was one of these uh, nobles who was also a talented administrator, and and it's and he he clearly had a desire to be an administrator. I mean, he spoke about how I mean, even in the tragic assassination of uh, Sergei Alexandrovich, he he saw it as a kind of a, a a release of a way for his career. Can you talk a bit about how? the the intersection between personal relationships but also say administrative talent is for people like uh Zhukovsky and their rise in in the tsar system in this period i think uh in his case i mean he uh was was a, was simply from the very beginning i think a kind of workaholic i mean he was anxious to do things 
Uh, and so when he was a courtier and, and sort of stuck in the the court of Sergei Alexandrovich in Moscow, I mean, he's really constantly chafing, looking for something to do. And, and it's interestingly enough, I mean, Sergei and, and Ella, his wife, uh, understood this, and they tried to give him things to do, a small task. I mean, he was sent out, for example, into the famine zone in 1892 uh, to supervise relief there. He is uh, allowed to participate or is ordered to participate in the preparation of the Moscow census, or the, 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 the all-Russian census, but the Moscow branch uh, in, 18, uh, in 1896 to prepare for that. And then he's sent to, uh, to Thessaly uh, during the Greco-Turkish War of 1897, where he heads up a medical team. Uh, and he gets a lot of experience from these things. And then, uh, but, but he's always looking for something more. And finally, he's given this uh, opportunity to sort of put together uh, the Moscow branch of the uh, guardianship of public sobriety, which sounds sort of tedious, but it is not because it is a major institution reaching out to the working class. And suddenly this a whole new vista is open to him, getting together or getting a better understanding of the lower classes of Russian society, which he knew nothing about, really. On this, it's actually really interesting, too, because here is a guy who he has, has the opportunity of seeing both worlds and actually touching both polarized worlds of, of late Tsarist Russia. And that is, on the one hand, as you said, being really intimately close to members of the royal family, seeing them in all their warts, warts and all, but also of someone, once he, he goes to Moscow and he heads up the Moscow Guardianship of Public Safety, it puts him in direct contact with the lower classes within this rapidly changing urban space of Moscow. Uh, so, how do you think that experience colored his understanding of Russia in those years, the system that was underfolding before 1905? I, I, I'm not sure it uh, caused him to uh, rethink uh, his views of, of of Russian society and government. I mean, I think he believed basically that government should be firm and that, uh, but it should also be humane. He, you have to understand, Junkovsky was a deeply religious Christian. And he believed that uh, in the, his family motto, which was Deo et Proximo, uh, for God and neighbor. So uh, the idea of service to the people was something he uh, understood, uh, but in a way very different, say, from the, the, the populist radicals uh, of the same time. So I think, I think when he got the chance to work with the people of Moscow, the, the lower classes of Moscow, he, he really felt he was fulfilling not only his uh, Christian duty, but also a major duty to the, to the state as well. Yeah, and it seems that he he's part of this, you know, to kind of expand it out, he's part of this general trend amongst, amongst the, you know, Russian middle and also upper classes like himself, who are seeing a more charitable mission for, the, for themselves within the country. Would you would you place them in that? Oh, absolutely. I think you know if you look at the at the the, the guardianship of public sobriety, while it's already seen as a kind of temperance organization, it really was a kind of major effort to to reach and to civilize, if you will, the newly 
urbanized peasants who were flowing into the city as a result of the industrialization. And so, uh, and these people brought in with them sort of w ways of life that were very ill-suited to an urban environment. And they were facing, of course, enormous uh, privations as well. And so I think he sees the, uh, the guardianship as a way of, of, of connecting with these people. And I think if you look at the guardianship, you see it's in the context of other groups, other uh, non-governmental agencies that were springing up all over the place. I mean, people's houses, for example, which the uh, guardianship uh, pioneered in Moscow or, or pushed in Moscow, were springing up all over the country. Some of them were managed by, uh, you know, a private individuals. Some were managed by uh, sort of institutions that were not that were not uh, themselves uh, government institutions. So, I mean, I think we see a, a general uh, attempt to really uh, to interface with and to connect with this new urban element. And I think he's part of this broader picture. Knowing he's a committed monarchist and and Christian, uh, I at the same time I I was somewhat surprised by his say ambivalence to uh, say Zubatov, who is organizing these types of labor union type organizations for workers. I mean, it seems that Zhukovsky understood this importance, but at the same time still had an uncomfortableness about them as well. Can you talk a bit about his relationship more to like the emerging working class within Moscow and, and Zubatov in particular? The Zubatov uh, effort to somehow connect with the working class and lead it in a, a non-radical direction was something Zhukovsky uh, basically uh, agreed with. But he also recognized that it contains certain dangers. And so fairly, on, fairly early on, uh, after sort of attending some of the workers' meetings that were put together to uh, discuss labor conditions or to be in, informed about uh, labor movements in other countries, he began to be uh, a little bit disturbed, uh, sort of to see it as really not uh, reaching the goal of educating the workers, but rather uh, taking them perhaps in the wrong direction, or they didn't understand what was being said to them. So he sort of began to phase out that aspect of, of the Zubatov movement uh, in Moscow, even before Bloody Sunday, which of course was the, was the death knell of that whole thing. And this is the other thing, is that he, he is in Moscow uh, as a government official in, in 1905, so what was his experience during the revolution in Moscow? How did he, what did he do? How did he understand it? Uh, how did it change him? I'm not sure so much that it changed him, but I think he, he did uh, obviously uh, see the revolution in a negative light in the sense that it was a threat to the regime that he believed in and, uh, and, and to the monarchy. But he was, uh, he was Moscow's, Moscow was in disarray. Uh, even before uh, the uh, the revolution begins to unfold, administrative structure was being shifted around, and when the when the troubles began at the beginning of 1905, uh, Zhukovsky appears to be kind of a, one of the few <laughs> relatively competent people who can do uh, do things. For example, right after 1905, uh, right after Bloody Sunday, there were strikes all over the country. There were strikes in Moscow. And Zhukovsky uh, simply says, let me use the auspices of the guardianship as a way of connecting with the workers and telling them to sort of cool it. 
and he does this, and he, uh, he uses the thing to issue a proclamation. He doesn't claim that he's solved the working class problem, but at least he was doing something uh, in a chaotic uh, situation. And then as the year unfolds, he's more and more uh, sort of drawn into uh, administrative positions. I mean, he's He's offered the job, for example, in uh, in after the assassination of of Sergei Alexandrovich, uh, he's offered the job of being uh, a city commandant. Uh, he doesn't like that idea because that's too much of a police job, and so. But he's very happy when he gets the chance to become vice governor, and it's particularly when he becomes vice governor, he's actually on almost immediately acting as governor because the 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 current governor uh, was. <laughs> clearly terrified with what was going on and was sort of hiding out. And so Shunkovsky was sort of thrust forward to sort of manage the province in, uh, in, in this crisis situation. And then, I mean, as the, as the general strike, for example, unfolds, he again dem- demonstrates a great deal of, of competence. I mean, he's the guy who, uh, together with a, a, a very able engineer, uh, helped to keep the water on in Moscow because the workers were going to turn off the water supply, and so he he helps get that kept in, kept running. And uh, then when uh, the when the uh, October Manifesto is issued, uh, well, he has to you know deal with some of the tumultuous after effects. And one of the things he does is to manage the the release of political prisoners from the Moscow jails. And he gets he gets faulted by this uh, faulted for this by conservatives, but he but but I think the government in in Saint Petersburg sees him again as somebody who knows how to do something in the in this crisis, and so uh, he's again offered the job of being a city commandant. Again, he turns it down, and the gov- and then it says, "I'd rather be governor." And since uh, the current governor was planning to retire. Uh, he goes to the, he's sent on up to the emperor, and the emperor agrees to appoint him as 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 governor. I mean, it's a pretty comic sort of little episode because clearly the emperor had no idea what was going on in some respects in Moscow. So, uh, so Zhukovsky becomes governor, uh, acting governor, and then of course he, uh, in the midst of the, the the climax of the revolution, which of course is the Moscow armed uprising. He works very closely with Governor General Dubasov, but Dubasov, uh, but it's really Dubasov who has the task of exercising the greatest repression in Moscow. Junkovsky uh, is a very effective uh, uh, assistant to him, but doesn't get his hands dirty uh, in the in the whole business of of repression. Uh, he really, when he has to send out troops, for example, to one of the the factories in the province where there was a street, uh, there was a strike, uh, he uh, he makes it very clear that he does not want force used. And 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 as a result, he comes through or comes out of the revolutionary crisis. I don't want to say smelling like a rose, but as close as as we can get to that, because I mean, he, he on the one hand, Dubasov writes to the emperor and says, "This guy is terrific." Uh, he's a he'd just been made colonel, but you should make him a general. And and so and, and of course that was something that didn't happen. But at the same time, it's symbolic of the fact that his superior thought the world of him, and the and the Russian public uh, in Moscow didn't see him as a villain either. Uh, and so uh, he is uh, spared uh, 
I suppose, some of the attacks that occurred on state officials in the, in the aftermath of the uh, suppression of the Moscow uprising. A few minutes ago, you mentioned the fact that Zhukovsky is one of these administrators after 1905. He's, he's emblematic of, at least of the Tsarist officials, who become more like politicians. And, and I think you really see that in the fact that now, as governor of Moscow province, he has to deal with the new Zemstvas, he has to deal with the new Dumas. Uh, so, and uh, I should say not new Zemstvas, but more um, uh, involved Zemstvas, or at least clamoring for more involvement in the, the running of the country. So how does he, what is his style of administration and dealing with these various more, um, uh, more political voices and players within Russian society? Well, as I say, he, he's a kind of a natural politician. I mean, if, if you if you could imagine him being shifted over to, say, England or France or even the United States, you could see this guy as a, a sort of a natural for elective office. He, he, he likes to get out among the people, press the flesh, uh, and, and uh, get to know folks. And I think this, is, this becomes his part of his style. I mean, he, I, I compare him a little bit to someone like Teddy Roosevelt and Fiorello LaGuardia. He, you sort of you get the impression that he wanted to be on the back of every fire truck when there was a, was a fire. And so he was, he's very much activist, uh, very hands-on. But he's also, what you, he's also a conservative. I mean, politically, his, his, his ideal czar was Alexander III. His political hero was Stalipin, but he also recognizes that the political ideas of Alexander III's time were not suited to the period after 1905, and of course he opposed some of the things that Stalipin did, including the the courts martial, which were which were of course uh, the, you know the famous Stalipin neckties and all of that. Uh, he was opposed to that kind of thing. Uh, so he approaches uh, he, he's he's what you could call a liberal conservative. Uh, he, he approaches the task of governance uh, with a desire to be both firm and fair. He, his treatment of the Zemstvas is a, is a good example of, of his, his way of doing things. When the Zemstvas had swung, as they did in the 1905 period, uh, to the left, uh, he was pretty uh, pretty hard nosed about it, uh, and and did not let them get out of uh, what what he felt was the proper uh, control. He he supported the Zemstva at the same time, because he believed that the Zemstva was really a valuable instrument for economic development, uh, for education, for building uh, infrastructure. These were things that he was very supportive of the Zemstva doing, and. So when the Zemstvo became increasingly conservative, as the uh, nobility uh, disabused themselves of their sort of radicalism of the 1905, uh, he he works hand in glove with the Zemstvos, and he's at the same time he he of course supports the Duma. Uh, he is uh, quite interest. It's quite interesting that uh, although the the Tsar and and later the Minister of Internal Affairs Maklakov would be hostile to the Duma, even in and in, later on, uh, he is very much, uh, you know, in favor of the of the institution. Zhukovsky, he um, he's uh, basically joins and, and starts working within the Ekhrana in in 1913, and it's interesting because. Uh, he's not someone with a police background, and in fact, you mentioned that he had turned down two previous positions or two previous attempts to for him to work in the police in Moscow. So, uh, 
what was his service in the Akrana like? How did he view policing in general? And, and what was his career, short tenure there? Well, first of all, uh, as I say, he, he wasn't really workings of the secret police. Uh, he was the oversight man. He was the minister, assistant minister of internal affairs for police, and he was the commander of the Corps of Gendarmes, which gave him broad oversight over all of the police apparatus in the country, but he wasn't directly involved in the day-to-day management of things. Uh, he, sort of, he, his, he felt himself, his task was to set the tone uh, for the institution, and this is where he, of course, uh, immediately got into sort of conflict with the uh, with the real uh, Krana, because uh, his his attitude to, he wasn't uh, he was a skilled administrator, but he had he really had no experience in policing, and he didn't really have a lot of uh, fondness for the secret police as a, as an institution. He felt it was kind of amoral. But in addition, I think he saw that the police had 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 developed techniques and uh, ways of doing things that were becoming counterproductive. I mean, the the clearest example of this is the so-called question of or the question of provocatia, of, of provo- having agent provocateur, if you want to call them, uh, inserted in radical institutions or radical groups. Now he he felt. That was a general uh, means of espionage, but he also thought that sometimes the secret police became uh, so involved in the uh, in the operations that they lost their sense of bearings. And you know, he he was aware, for example, of what had happened uh, with regard to the socialist revolutionaries and Azef, the sort of double agent who was the head of the fighting detachment and at the same time a police spy. And had had you know organized the assassination of government officials, and he worried about this uh, and saw this as a real problem, and so he wanted to cut back on this kind of thing. He wanted to to restructure the institution to some degree to 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 eliminate uh, administrative uh, what do I say administrative growth, excessive administrative growth, excessive expenditures. So what he tries to do, uh, what he does is uh, a number of specific reforms. Uh, for example, he re- has uh, uh, police spies removed from the ranks of the army. Uh, he has police spies uh, removed from the ranks of school children. Uh, he felt this was a you know a corruption of youth. Uh, so he he tries to restrict the the recruitment of these sort of police spies. And then he has to deal with uh, some uh, problems. Uh, for example, he, he faces the, the problem of perlustratia, uh, the opening of correspondence. He, he doesn't like this, but he can't really abolish the system. Either he tries to cut it back, tries to regularize it. He, and the same thing, he has to deal with sort of the pro- problem of administrative exile. He thinks this is, of course, a, a thing that is very, very uh, unpopular with the public. If he can cut this back, if he can mitigate it, uh, he tries to do that. So these are the kind of reforms he was interested in uh, bringing about. This is what he was trying trying to, what he thought was to sort of regularize uh, and to insert what you might call 
a, a better moral tone in the operation of the secret police. Well, you can imagine that this didn't go down very well with the police professionals who saw themselves as, as having done a very good job and wanted to continue uh, to do it. And he, of course, recognized that they had been successful in really crushing a lot of the revolutionary organizations. Uh, but he felt now that, in a sense, there was too much of a good thing and that, the, that these policies should be curtailed uh, and could be curtailed uh, without doing damage to the fundamental needs of the, of, the, of the state and the ability of the secret police to really deal with the enemies of the state. He wasn't uh, simply wanting to get rid of the secret police altogether. He wanted to simply reform its practices and to bring it more closely in line uh, with public opinion. Now, this is not an easy task, and I think uh, it was something that uh, uh, was probably not his big success. I think his uh, his he was not a, a he was a, he was a success in some areas, but I don't think you could call him a, 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 a very successful as a police administrator. I think this was the weakest point in his career. It's the one. It's the most controversial aspect of his career as well. Right. I mean, you know, he's he's coming into a, a situation, and particularly post nineteen oh five, the level of violence, the re- return of of you know just the 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 impact that experience of the revolution or radicalization of uh, revolutionary movements even the return of the use of terrorism into the the at least at least 1910 or so so i i would imagine it would be for someone like him who doesn't have a police background to have a lot of difficulty getting any of the career uh, officers within the police to to change their ways. Yeah, I think that's certainly true. And, and, and of course, he does one of the things he does that really have uh, some important impact on his personal life uh, is the removal of Roman Malinovsky from the Tsarist Duma. Roman Malinovsky was, of course, a member of Lenin's Central Committee. He was the head of the Bolshevik faction in the Duma. He was also a police spy. And so Zhunkovsky, uh sort of eases him out of the Duma. And uh, well, later, of course, uh, they will have contact again after the revolution because Zhunkovsky appears as a witness at his trial. Now a word from our sponsor. Want to learn Russian, Ukrainian, Arabic? The University of Pittsburgh Summer Language Institute offers intensive 6, 8, and 10-week language study courses in Arabic, Bosnian, Croatian, Serbian, Bulgarian, Czech, Hungarian, Polish, Russian, Slovak, Turkish, and Ukrainian. That's a year's worth of coursework in one single summer. You can study at the University of Pittsburgh's main campus or study abroad. And if all that isn't enticing enough, Courses are taught by exceptionally trained foreign language instructors. Pitt's Summer Language Institute accepts undergraduate and graduate students as well as professionals and retirees. Apply by March 2, 2018 to be eligible for generous scholarship funding. Join our program to discover the world. Apply now at sli.pitt.edu. That's sli.pitt.edu. So he he spends a couple two years or so in in doing policing work, uh, at least working in the administration of police, and then the war breaks out. So what happens to him during the war? Well, well, first of all, uh, he he he's, he can he, 
on the eve of the war, one of, and I think this is one of the things that's particularly interesting in the book, uh, has to do with uh, what he does to, to uh, deal with an oil strike that breaks out in uh, right in 1914, right on the right just before the war, and he goes down and and tries to deal with that question, and I think this really illustrates his his, his style uh, as an administrator and as a as a representative of the police because he goes down. Uh, armed with all kinds of extraordinary powers, but his real goal is to find out what's troubling the workers and try to eliminate the sources of their discontent. And so instead of hammering the workers, he pulls the uh, oil producers into a meeting uh, and makes them agree to all kinds of reforms with regard to the living conditions and working conditions that the uh, oil workers are dealing with. So he, this is this is sort of the approach that he took to a lot of uh, sort of sometimes kind of police problems, and particularly to the problem of the upsurge in uh, the revolution, uh, revolutionary activity or radical activity on the eve of the of uh, the First World War. Now during the war, he uh, he is uh, has a number of uh, things to do. One of the things is, of course, to protect the emperor as he travels throughout the country, as he did uh, in other situations as well. And he also has to deal with the uh, problem of uh, enemy aliens in the country and how uh, how to treat them. And he tries to treat them again uh, fairly. Uh, and actually, he gets a lot of flack for that because uh, there is an, a tremendous upsurge of anti-German a feeling in the country, and naturally enough, uh, and he is uh, sort of labeled as being pro-German, which of course is the last thing he was. And what about his relationship and his attitudes towards the royal family in these years, and particularly the presence of uh, Rasputin? Yeah, well, of course, uh, he becomes, he, he was alarmed about Rasputin uh, early, fairly early on. I mean, but primarily, and I think his whole attitude towards Rasputin uh, was that he was a, a kind of public relations disaster. I mean, he was just, uh, he was he was the, the font of all kinds of anti-monarchist uh, sentiments, uh, rumors, things that Zhukovsky didn't believe were true at all. But uh, he does believe that uh, Rasputin is, engages in activities which are bringing discredit to the monarchy. And he, he really, the, the whole problem comes to a head uh, in uh, in uh, June of 1915. Two things happen. One, there is, of course, a major uprising in Moscow at the end of May, uh, in which a lot of anti-monarchical sentiment was expressed. Uh, it, was a, it was an anti-German pogrom, but it, was, it also had anti-monarchical uh, uh, overtones or undertones. And uh, he also learns that Rasputin has engaged, apparently, in some kind of scandalous activity at the Yar restaurant. And uh, at this point, he gets, uh, gets a, a, a report, a police report, that is actually so shocking to him that he, he wouldn't ever be able to, to uh, print the whole text in his memoirs. And even, even in the original document, which a Russian colleague discovered, uh, he pastes it over the dirty parts, if you will. So that, but but on the basis of that and the and the uprising in Moscow, he gives uh, a, makes a report to the emperor. The nature of which we, uh, the exact nature of which we don't know. But I think his uh, his report to the emperor uh, 
urged him to send Rasputin away from the from the uh, capital and to try to sever the connection of the royal family with this uh, scandalous figure. Uh, he does this uh, not because he hates Rasputin. He's never met Rasputin, but he's just, as I say, he sees him as this kind of uh, public relations disaster, uh, a gift to the monarchy's uh, enemies, you know. So, uh, and but of course, once that the word of his uh, activities, what his his report uh, gets out, the empress comes down and. Uh, he is he is summarily dismissed uh, in uh, I think on the fifteenth of August, nineteen fifteen. Russia in this period is is the levels of of growing destabilization are enormous. You have a massive war going on. The, the it's not going it's not going well for the government. It's putting a lot increasing a lots of already existing pressures in Russian society. There is an increase in in work after the euphoria of patriotic euphoria of uh, you know late nineteen fourteen and early nineteen fifteen. There increasing anger amongst the po- major segments of the population. And of course, as we know, it all kind of begins to, it falls apart in beginning in February 1917. So where does Zhukovsky place himself in and the things that are going around him, and particularly after the monarchy collapses? After he's dismissed from uh, office uh, as head of the uh, uh, sort of the security apparatus, he goes to the front. Now, he's a major general, but he's never commanded men in the field, and he's a complete greenhorn, but he's also an incredibly quick study, and he very quickly uh, does emerge as a competent military commander. Uh, He distinguishes himself in the the Russian defeat at Narach Lake. Uh, His positions were broken through by the Germans, uh, and he rallies his troops and drives the Germans back. And so he, he's proved to be a fairly effective commander. Uh, he's, he started out just being in charge of, of a brigade. And by the beginning of, by the end of 1916, he's, a, he's in command of a division. And he's, he is in command of a division at the time uh, that the monarchy is overthrown. And of course, this is a tremendous blow to him because he's, he's an ardent monarchist. But he's also an ardent patriot, too. So he obviously wants to stay at the front and to lead his men, to hold the uh, the uh, units together, and to uh, pursue the war to what he hopes would be a victorious conclusion. In the face of the revolution, of course, uh, uh, right after Order Number 1 sort of spills into the trenches, uh, he has to confront all kinds of political problems. And here, I think his administrative experience and his political uh, style worked very well for him. He really did have a good understanding of the uh, of the men. Uh, he was very, very solicitous of their welfare, physical uh, welfare, and 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 safety. He didn't want to risk them in in unnecessary engagements. Uh, he wanted to make sure their positions were well uh, well fortified. And he also wanted to see that they got the proper food and, and, and the proper uh, medical care. So he's a very, his administrative skills are put to very good use. And he enjoys uh, a tremendous amount of popularity uh, on, from the soldiers in his units. And in fact, uh, as the re- even as the revolution deepens and the army begins to move towards uh, uh, disintegration, 
uh, in September of 1917, uh, he is uh, asked to take command of the 3rd Siberian Corps to move up from division command to a corps command. Uh, and, the, and, and a lot of the impetus for this comes from the soldiers' committees who saw him as a person who really did uh, concern himself with the welfare of the troops. And I think his, again, his, his political skills were, were put to good use in a very, very difficult situation. And he doesn't really leave the front until after the Bolshevik uh, Revolution. And he leaves only when the soldiers' committees come to him and say, look, it's, this has gotten really dangerous, and uh, you ought to get out of here. Uh, so they were concerned for his welfare uh, as he was concerned for theirs. What happens to him after then, and and during the Civil War and into the 1920s? Because he is a he doesn't flee; he is arrested, uh, but he's also released in, 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 from prison in the early 20s. So, what is his life like now in this this new period of 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 Russian Russia's history? Well, it's of course uh, a lot of it is fairly obscure. We don't have a lot of good uh, evidence of sort of his day to day existence, but. What happens to him? He comes back from the front. He is briefly arrested, uh, sort of on a as a mistake, and then he's released. He puts in for retirement. He gets retired on medical grounds. He had a heart problem. He then gets a pension from the Bolsheviks, which he accepts and which he will receive until he is arrested in September of 1918. When he's on a trip from from Petrograd down to the south, he, he wanted to go visit relatives and really to look into the question of maybe moving out of Petrograd because life was really tough there and coming down uh, to moving into the south. He's arrested. He's held in Smolensk, which is a very dangerous and unpleasant uh, prison. Uh, he is finally moved from Smolensk to Moscow because they need him as a witness at the trial of Roman Malinovsky. So he he becomes a, a witness there, and it's interesting that that in the trial uh, he actually injects a note of sympathy for Malinovsky, sort of suggesting perhaps under the questioning of one of the judges that Malinovsky was really a victim of uh, the sort of nefarious practices of the secret police. That, uh, but this doesn't, of course, save Malinovsky, who was who was who was shot, and then uh, he's. Zhukovsky continues to be held in prison when his sister, of course, is, who was very, very close to him and uh, very much a, a big factor in his life, uh, his his sister and, and many other people begin to press for his release. And one of the things that comes out at this time and at the end of 1918 uh, is a, a petition sent to Lenin from the uh, leading figures of the Moscow stage. Zhukovsky was an enormous uh, lover of the theater, and in Moscow he knew all the actors and actresses and attended all their performances and involved them in the work of the guardianship of public sobriety. And, uh, you know, they just sent this incredible petition to Lenin explaining how wonderful Zhukovsky was and how he had, had, how he had uh, uh, intervened on the behalf of, of radicals who were being mistreated. Uh, and, as, and so uh, uh, this doesn't get him sprung from prison, but it may have kept him from being shot at that point. Then in 1919, in May of 1919, he's put on trial. 
Uh, I think the government was planning for this to be a kind of show trial to show how, uh, uh, you know, how the, the, the sort of criminal and cruel activities of the Tsarist administration. Instead, this whole trial backfires uh, and because the public, in, I mean, people from all rank, ranks of society uh, appear at the trial uh, and testify to uh, Zhukovsky's uh, fine characteristics uh, and his his, uh, his honesty and honor and all of this. And it's it, it, it's interesting because this was covered in the newspaper quite well. And it's it's kind of an, a forgotten episode in the early history of of uh, Soviet uh, jurisprudence. In any case, the upshot was even though he is. Uh, uh, the de the uh, prosecution called for the death penalty. The upshot was that he was sentenced to prison uh, for five years and then uh, released uh, early in 1921, at the end of 1921. Now, <clears throat> at this point, he passes into a relatively relative obscurity, and a lot of things we don't that took place in his life we probably will never find out about. But uh, he was, um, it apparently he was. Uh, interrogated by the secret police during his imprisonment. He may have been asked to give uh, advice uh, to uh, Zerzhinsky. Uh, and after his release, it appears that he enjoyed uh, protection from uh, someone up in the higher reaches of the uh, organs, so to speak. We, we, we think, my, my best guess is that it probably came directly or indirectly from Menjinsky. Menjinsky who was the, would be the second commander of the uh, of the secret police in 1926 but who was the he was the assistant to Zerzhinsky from 1923 on so anyways there's some uh, some indication that he uh, receives uh, protection from the secret police for much of the 20s and at the end of the 20s he begins to be called in for specific consultations uh, the first one was in, I think, in 1928. Interestingly, at a moment when there was a huge upsurge of hostility to former people and of specialists of, uh, inherited from the old regime, uh, stimulated by the Shakti uh, trials and all that. So Zhukovsky is called in and asked uh, to give them advice on how they treat foreigners who come into the country? How should they be managed? Uh, and clearly, this is an important issue because the, now the question raised by the Shakti trials uh, of how, uh, about the possibility, the danger posed by foreign uh, specialists, because that's one of the things that was central to that uh, bogus operation. So he's he's called in on that. And then later, uh, his uh, he's called in uh, to advise on the reintroduction of the internal passports, and this uh, is obviously his. He has a lot of expertise on that. He's interviewed for up to four hours on this uh, question, and exactly how his uh, expertise was used, we don't know. But I, I speculate a little bit about that in the book, and then finally. Uh, in either 33 or 34, there's some question about this. He was asked to give advice on how the Ministry of Internal Affairs was uh, organized and uh, how uh, and how leaders were protected when they traveled uh, on the on the railroads, particularly. 
And you can sort of see the significance of that, too, because the Ministry of Internal Affairs was being reorganized at the time. And, of course, people were worried about the safety of people like Stalin. And one of the people who interviewed him, and probably a, a major figure in these interviews, was Karl Pauker. Uh, and I think uh, and Pauker was in charge of Stalin's personal security. So what, what leads to his arrest and, and during the terror and, and eventual exec, execution? And he's essentially, I mean, when you start the book, he's uh, executed in the famous killing fields of uh, Butova outside of Moscow in 38. Yeah, uh, well, uh, his arrest in, uh, in uh, 37 is probably simply a result of order 00447. As know, a recidivist say, and, and a yeah, former person. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, there was a round up the usual suspects. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was one of the usual suspects. I mean, he fit in the category. But he was quite old. He's in his, he's in his, he's six, in his late 70s, 70s, by 70s then. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of course, you you know, the, the thing is that he's, he's, he's interrogated, and we have uh, some record of his interrogation. And he's a very, uh, you know, he says, he was asked, are you a, counter-revolutionary. Well, I was a counter-revolutionary before the revolution, but after the revolution, I haven't done anything about that at all. And he, he maintains his uh, basic uh, innocence, but it doesn't do him any good. But I mean, the point is that he's not tortured or anything. Uh, and the last person to see him alive was uh, uh, Ivanov Razumnik, uh, the, uh, the famous uh, intellectual historian, literary critic, and they were cellmates for a while, for three days, in Butyrka. And uh, <laughs> Ivana Frasumnik just says, well, he was just a charming guy. And he was so full of stories. I, I mean, I could have, he, he told me so many interesting things about bygone times, I could have written a whole book about them. Well, of course, Junkovsky had written a memoir that sprawls to three, you know, three printed volumes of 600 pages apiece, and that only covers 17 years of his life. So he was he was a man full of stories. And uh, he's, he apparently retained his humor and aplomb right to the very end. And finally, um, what would you like leaders to take from uh, Zhukovsky's life as they read his biography? Well, I think, first of all, I, I, I think the story itself. I mean, a biography in the in the last analysis is just a story of of an individual. And here you have a, a remarkable, basically very honest guy, deeply religious, conservative, but uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, able to sort of accept things that happened around him. Uh, how how he lives through this enormously tumultuous period. I think this is just the the the, the most important thing about the about the book itself and the story itself. And then I think uh, you can see through Zhukovsky, who was illustrative but and, and not typical, but he wasn't uh, unique either. You can see what's going on in, particularly in the in late Imperial Russia, the kind of changes that were going on in the administration, the kind of things that were, uh, I think, moving Russia in a much more positive direction uh, and and might have unfolded very differently, ha- uh, but for the accident uh, of the First World War. That was Richard Robbins, Professor Emeritus of History at the University of New Mexico. He's the author of Famine in Russia, 1891 to 1892, The Imperial Government Responds to a Crisis, and The Tsar's Viceroys, Russian Provincial Governors in the Last Years of the Empire. 
His new book is Overtaken by the Night, One Russian's Journey Through Peace, War, Revolution, and Terror, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review on iTunes, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. If you want to help support it, you can do so by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. And just remember, if you want to help support transcribing interviews, become rank 9, a Senate translator. I want to thank all my supporters, my high excellencies, my high wellborns and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye!